0: You could say that former state representative Judy Baker is a veteran of the campaign trail. And now the Columbia native is vying for the state treasurer's office. The Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking.
1: Nine, eight, seven, six, six, five, 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 four, three, three,
0: two, one.
2: Uh, I think that is fair to I say,
1: say.
0: hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know,
1: I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question.
0: Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our St. Louis studios is...
2: Colleague Joe Manis.
0: And someone who I think was very amused by our theme music. We have as our special guest all the way from beautiful Columbia, Missouri...
1: I love that. That's a great, great question part. (laughs) You know that we use that as a tick, right? (laughs)
0: It's Judy Baker, a former state representative from the Columbia area and a candidate for state treasurer on the Democratic side. Nice to be here.
2: Yeah. Just so our listeners know, we're uh, recording these. uh, We have gotten her uh, Democratic opponent. Uh, Pat Contreras. So, we're, we, when you are listening to these, these will be back to back. So,
0: if you're driving all the way from St. Louis to maybe Monroe City or Moberly or any other parts of the old Ninth District, you should just listen to them back to back, and yeah, you will binge be, listening. You will be very <laughs> informed about the race for state treasurer. So, before we get into that, um, just as a kind of a aside for our listeners, I've known former Representative Baker for a long time. I used to bother her all the time as a state government reporter for the Columbia Daily Tribune since she was part of the esteemed Boone County delegation. So this is a blast from the past in a good way.
1: And look at you now. I know. (laughs) So impressive. I I
0: know. I've come a long way, (laughs) a long way since uh, I was 22 and 23 years old. Tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of um, your background, and and kind of why you got involved in Missouri politics in the first place.
1: Wow, uh, that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Why I got involved in Missouri politics is mainly because uh, I grew up in a family that was heavy on public service. My father was in the Navy, and my mother was a public school teacher. And we were always taught the value of being a public servant. And so I started out in the private sector. I actually worked in the private sector for around twenty-five years, and then um,
2: you want to explain what what you did in the private sector? Sure,
1: uh, private sector healthcare, really. Um, I ran clinics, uh, was CEO of the last one that I ran and a couple others. Now, um, these
2: were healthcare clinics?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Did they specialize in particular types of healthcare?
1: Well, it was I'm, the last one I worked for was the University Physicians in Columbia, and we, it was the safety net hospital. So, you know, reaching the needs of rural and mid-Missouri um, folks was our mission. So uh, we tried uh, really hard to make sure everyone had access and, you know, financing that is important. So that was part of my job. And
0: then in 2004, you decided, I, I guess, out of a, a dose of psychosis to run for the Missouri House in the, what was, was the 25th district. It's now a different numbered district. Th- that was a district where if you won the Democratic primary, it was the election since it was very Democratic. You ran against like four or five other people from what I recall.
1: It was. It was a big primary, actually. And so and I was relatively new to politics at the time. Uh, I knew how, you know, government worked and I didn't know how politics worked.
2: Yeah. And so, be far our, so for our listeners, that district, whatever the number, takes in uh, Columbia. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And I think it, it included the University of Missouri, like yes. the entire campus as mm-hmm. well. That is
1: correct. Um, and so uh, actually in the private sector, I started to learn that so, so much of what we needed to do couldn't be done. People would say, Well, to do that, you'd have to change the law. And I'd say, well, then let's do that. (laughs) So, um, you know, getting involved was just kind of naturally came out of my experience, even in the private sector.
0: So you served, I think you you won re-election in 2006. So I think you served for four years at a time when there were more Democrats in the Missouri House, a lot of talented people back then in the Democratic caucus, everyone from the current treasurer, Clint Zweifel, who I think was a very active member of your caucus, as well as a number... He was of... a
1: great colleague. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he was. Uh, we were in the minority. Yeah, you still were um, in the minority. Mm-hmm. But,
0: but what was it like to serve during that time? I remember it well, but kind of give our listeners that it decides. was
1: it was it was actually pretty exciting because the votes were closer back then so you could get some things done and I I was known I think for being able to work across the aisle with my colleagues uh, on the other side on what I seemed was reasonable um, I would I would go door-to-door with my Republican colleagues and talk about the issues and, and kind of tell them what my perspective was learn what their perspective was so that we could find some kind of common ground and on a few things we did. Politics sometimes got in the way of doing what I thought was the right thing, um, but we continued to fight for it. What I probably missed the most about being in the House um, was the ability to stand up and raise my voice and to say and to speak for my constituents and to and to use that as a tool for education for the entire state.
2: Now, um and of course, back then, even though you were in the minority, there's like twenty or twenty-five more than there are now. That is correct. I yeah. mean, so at least you had some sort of weight, right? Um, what prompted you to to decide to run for Congress? Uh,
1: the the same thing. I mean, the 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 ability. I I felt I I needed to take my skills and take it to the next level and into a a bigger arena. And Um, this was 2008. Just for some
0: context here, that race, as we'll explain in a second, became very unwieldy after Kenny Holsoff ran for governor. But I remember very vividly that you started an exploratory committee before he announced he was running for governor. So you had made this decision when it wasn't exactly the easiest contest. It it wasn't
1: actually going, you know, a lot of people said, there's no way you can win. But I said, but that's not, why you run you 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 want to win winning is important and you get different things when different people win but I also wanted it for me it's not as much about winning as it is being able to talk about the things that are important and to being out there on the stump and educating people and and fielding questions and making relationships and listening to folks.
0: So you are the second, I think you were the third uh, alum of the ninth district scramble to be on the show. Blaine, Luke DeMeyer has been on once. Bob Onder has been on twice. And wow. I, I remember it very, very, I guess I remember it probably more fondly than the candidates who were actually running in it because it was a huge <laughs> district. But just to give our listeners a little perspective, after Kenny Holsoff decided to run for governor, I believe three more Democratic candidates got in the race, Steve Gog, Ken Jacob, and Lyndon Bodie. There were then four Republicans, including my good friend Brock Olivo, who also got into the race to run again. Oh and
2: my
1: get... gosh, Brock Olivo. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: and just so listeners realize, this is this this district went from Columbia all the way up
0: to northeast Missouri. Northeast and, Missouri and, and, and the Charles. border with Iowa. So it was a huge district That's and right. it it went from a situation to where this became a nationally targeted race. So, and, and it did. In, 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 we put it on the map. I'd say on,
1: we put it on the map.
0: So, after you won the primary, it yeah. became a situation where both the Republican and the Democratic candidate got lots of money from the national parties and. It was a close race. It was yeah. only a three percentage between you and and now Congressman Luke DeMeo, which a lot of people would say was very impressive given how Republican that district was. So, what did you kind of learn from that? Yeah, experience? I like to say
1: one and a half swing. We yeah. made it. You know, <laughs> we kept him under fifty. Yeah and we got 47 and a half. So, um, in a, in a race that a lot of folks didn't think I'd even break 40%. And so we, that race is, is actually indicative of what I think we can do when we reach out to independence and we get some, you know, excitement going on in, on a race, uh, engage younger folks and, and people who aren't normally in the process. I mean, we, I, you know, I've shook so many hands and went to so many places where I think Democrats even don't normally go. We did very well in that rural area, um, much better than anyone expected us to.
2: What did you learn? I mean, a lot of politicians often tell me that it's the contest they lost where they often learn the most. What did you learn from that that you are now taking with you as you run for state treasurer?
1: That is uh, that is absolutely true. I think losing. I think losing is the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, I uh, first of all, I learned how great people are, and how much that they will get involved. I mean, I called people who who had no idea who I was that said, "We're going to help you," just because of what they believed in and what you know. We just talked about the things that matter, and they wanted to get involved. Um, so I learned that, but I also learned that um, money does play a large role in our politics, and it was very difficult for me to um, work against that, honestly, I mean, we, um, we were neck and neck, we even had a poll where I was up, and then uh, the, the opponent put in quite a bit of money in the late, at, at the very last minute, and I was raising it, you know, small donors at a time, And there was no way for us to catch up. But, you know, I had people ask me afterwards. um, I hope it's okay to be totally honest in this show. But I had people ask me afterwards. They said, you know, I really wanted to vote for you. But I just couldn't believe you did all those things. And I'm like, what things? And I said, does it occur to you that those might not be true?
0: You mean the things in the ads? Yeah, the things in
1: the ads.
2: Do you mind mentioning an example? Just so people...
1: Well, it would be probably... Not, uh, it would give my current opponents probably (laughs) some. (laughs) Well, we'll let people, Um,
0: we can, yeah.
1: But, you know, the ads are out there, but I was um, gonna say, they, they were all YouTube untrue. Them. Let me just say that right now. So after,
0: um, but after the ninth district race, it's not like you just uh, rested on your laurels and didn't do anything. You were actually appointed to a position in the federal government. Could you talk about that for a little bit?
1: Sure, well? uh, sure. So I was regional director in the Midwest uh, for Health and Human Services. And we dealt with, I dealt with 13 agencies uh, that do uh, uh, the Health and Human Services um, uh, all through uh, four states in the Midwest. Missouri was one of them Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas. And so I dealt with the, the local the state local governments um, to help them understand uh, uh, all of the services available. I mean we you know helped in Joplin during the tornado. We had a mental health response that came out of my office. We had a uh, and we worked with the state on on all of that um, and uh, so when, So, preparedness was one of them. Of course, uh, when the healthcare law came out, we were part of the outreach and education mission to help people understand how to best use the law to help constituents. I'll never forget the day that someone asked me to to meet him in our lobby of the building, and he told me about how, if I can say it, Obamacare saved his life. You know, I will never forget those types of stories, so I got to be a part of that. Uh, no matter how people feel about the health law, there has been some real good come out of it, and I got a chance to see that up close and personal. Now, where were you based? What where did, where did you have I to work I was in Kansas out? City, so we were in the bowling building in Kansas City.
0: Named so. after the Richard bowling? Yes. I, I just mentioned that because Joe has told me many, many interesting stories about him. Yeah, some days. Yeah,
2: that's a different show. That's a different show. <laughs> but just so our <laughs> listeners know, if you're ever really listening on somebody who really – um, had a lot of political muscle. It was Richard Bowling in the um, late '70s and early '80s. Congressman.
0: Uh, obviously, if you have a building named after you, you probably are pretty. You famous. Probably did something. Yeah. So <laughs> this is your second run for statewide office. You ran mm-hmm. in a very zany lieutenant governor's primary where there were like 100 a hundred different candidates. Zany good word. Um, which was eventually won by Susan Monty. Uh, not as not as uh, there were there were many stories from the ninth district race that we just went over. I don't really remember that many from the lieutenant governor's race of two thousand twelve. What prompted you to run for, for this particular office?
1: So the first thing I'll say is this is probably the my favorite race I've run for. It is probably the best fit of office for me. Do you want to explain that? Sure. Um, when I was a state rep, one of the first things that I did was I formed a nonpartisan, bipartisan, whatever you want to say. Um, American Dream Caucus it was uh, anti-poverty it was the the I wanted to bring people from both sides together to look at the safety net and how how it helps or doesn't help um, the people that we want it to help and so it was this is this I've always wanted to do something about poverty and of course we have a growing poverty problem in Missouri under the current leadership that has been going on we have uh, uh, stagnant incomes Um, We have uh, people who don't have even $400. Uh, 47% of Missourians don't even have $400 to fall back on as a cushion if they have a health care event or if they lose a job. We have one in four children, almost one in four children that are what they call food insecure, which means that they at some point in a month may not know where the next meal is coming from now i'm asking constituents on a regular basis to think about this because we have a 4.2 around 4.2 unemployment rate and that means that it's almost full employment and people are working so when folks say they ought to just go find a job they do have a job and sometimes They have two jobs or three, and they're still not able to make ends meet. And so to me, that means there is something fundamentally wrong with our economy here in Missouri. So the treasurer's office, I think, can be a a great place where a platform of economic development that includes everybody is sought. And so that's why this, this office is the best one I've ever run for. I'm running the best race I've ever run. And uh, we're, it's, we're, it's being met with a lot of enthusiasm and excitement all across the state.
0: Do you think the fact that you ran, for example, in 2008 and you had a large swath of rural Missouri has gotten you prepared to run in this particular race where you're trying to excite some parts of the state, which used to be Democratic, but are now more Republican? I, I'm curious about about that particular example.
1: I'd say absolutely yes. I mean... I'm, I've have found appeal for my message in urban areas and in rural areas. And you know we we talk a lot about the Democratic Republican split or the rich and the poor splits. but we have a really pretty good sized rural versus urban split. Oh yeah, as well. And so because I live in the rural mid-Missouri area and because I, but I have you know, a lot of sensibility about the urban, I've lived in a big urban areas, too. Dad was in the the military, and we lived in New York. We lived in Boston. We lived wherever they needed us to live, right? So um, I've lived in big urban areas as well, and so I, I bring a sense in which I think that we can bridge that divide.
2: Now, when you were um, in rural Missouri campaigning for Congress, now you're there again campaigning for state treasurer. Are you noticing differences? I mean, it's been eight years, yeah. so I'm interested in your thoughts about what you're seeing, um, not only economic climate-wise, but political climate-wise, as Jason referred, there's there's no uh, rural Democratic um,
1: state house members, for example, in there's,
0: Northeast Missouri, for yeah. example. But like, what are you hearing from from people that you may have talked to eight years ago and talking to now?
1: I think that's a very astute observation, and it's true that there are differences. I will say right off the bat that most of them are economic. I mean, I've been in rooms recently where I thought, "Wow, this is way different than eight years ago." As far as, how Can you I- being specific? Yeah, just um, a, a real feeling of, of uh, people asking questions about what's going to happen about their future, a real anxiety about their future, um, school, how to send kids to college or trade school, even. Or you know, um, they talk about the food pantries. <laughs> You know, I mean, the con- the conversation is not just healthcare anymore. It's everything else. It's education, it's food, it's jobs, it's um, uh, income. It's having lots of jobs uh, well, and just to it, make ends meet.
2: Is, it, is part of this tied to the fact, and Missouri is not the only state that's been affected by this, that's, uh, that's where true. you've got a lot of these small factories. They're not around anymore. A lot of the jobs that someone could get right out of high school or with a minimum amount of training, but they can make enough to support a family. Uh, and that's those, those are on the other side of the world now. And this isn't just Missouri, Indiana, and there's been, the New York Times just had a couple big stories about what's going on in Indiana, which I knew about 20 years ago this was going on. But I'm just interested, as you're traveling around and seeing this, uh, is there a sense of hopelessness, or just sort of what's the you know interesting?
1: Feeling?
2: That's
1: interestingly enough, it's it's not as hopeless as you'd think. It's anxiety, lots okay. of anxiety, some anger, depending on which side they want to blame. Um, but the, I think I still I still feel like we I run into people uh, who are hopeful all the time. Of course, I'm in a lot of rooms with Democrats, and they're very hopeful that because uh, under what has been a Republican leadership for quite some time, we're not doing as well as we were promised uh, would happen. You know, jobs and and all and all kinds of things. It's just not coming to fruition. So I think they're everyone's ready to try something new. Let's take one thing for example. Let's, let's just take Medicaid expansion—it pulls pretty high, and the reason it does, one of the reasons it does, is that no one wants to give our our tax money away to other states. And as of this budget that was just passed, we essentially have have sent eight billion dollars of our tax money out of the state into other states, and that represents about forty thousand jobs a year, and those are high-paying healthcare jobs in communities that I visit. The rural communities that have one hospital, you know, and that hospital is a lot of jobs and and largely, you know, uh, an older population that needs the hospital.
2: Well, do people blame the Republicans controlling Congress or do they blame the Democrat in the White House
1: for for not for not passing Medicaid expansion? Well, I well, think they pass. They they blame
2: or uh, do, or or our current legislature. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people, I mean, while in tune, people may understand the difference between who does what. I'm not sure if the average person who's just trying to work and trying to raise a family right. on a modest income, if they have a feeling of who's to blame for what or if they're just ticked off and that that may be what that that is the attraction, frankly, I think of Donald Trump and some others who are, who are considered as outsiders. I'm just interested as you're traveling what you're hearing and seeing.
1: Well, I think especially on the Medicaid expansion question, and you know, hopefully programs like yours will help help people understand this because we we just need to talk openly and honestly about it. And I think once people hear what has happened and how many jobs have left have have been uh, left um, on the table, that they I mean that's easy to understand. Forty thousand jobs a year, it, the health care money, eight billion dollars. That's shorting the state eight billion dollars.
0: So I want to know since you're running for treasurer. Um Kind of bringing into mind what we just talked about, what would you want to do to the office, not only in the official duties like investing the money or running the college savings plan, but also using it as this platform to talk about these tough but really serious issues around economics that are plaguing Missouri?
1: Yeah, I'm a former economics teacher, and so I understand economics. And the state treasurer will be at economic discussions. They will be at the table. They will be at forums. They will be with business people. They will be able to weigh in, and I'm looking forward to that. And I want to weigh in for that average person and for people who struggle and for you know single moms who are raising kids and, or single dads raising kids, because that's um, those are the folks, I think, that struggle the most. Uh, I, I think that I mean the banner that I'm kind of putting all of my policies under is building assets, building lives. Um, going back to that figure about how people don't have enough at the end of the day to even have a cushion to fall back on. We need better financial literacy. We need better access to bank accounts uh, for kids here in you know here in St. Louis. Uh, Tashara Jones has done a program that has um, put. Uh, given kindergartners access to bank accounts. Um, That has been tried other places and is going quite well as far as when you do that, when you provide um, access to bank accounts to low-income families for the first time, it changes their outlook on their future. Then I think financial literacy is a big a part of this, we do have a financial literacy requirement in this state, but there's a new report out just recently that shows that we are ranked dead last in a survey from um, Wallet Hub that says we are the least educated on financial. literacy. I was just going to
0: say, why do you think that is?
1: I don't know why it is, because um, uh, I don't. I haven't dug into what our curriculum is or how it's being done no. or. No. But I how want do, do they that.
2: determine financial literacy is it like knowing how to create a bank account I mean just sort of what yeah. does that take in
1: so how they uh, how they understand how a credit score is uh, put together um, their ability to manage a bank account um, a car, car insurance how insurance works you know so that you can be kind of you can cover yourself for adverse events um, and how to build assets, what the time value of money is, all of that kind of stuff.
0: So um, what would be some of the things about the official duties, like whether it be college savings accounts, whether it be how the, the, the state treasurer approaches low-income housing, because mm-hmm. you're, you would be on the board that authorizes that, what would be some things that you would want to bring to the table that may be different than what's been going on with that office in years past?
1: Well, I think Clint's done a great job, honestly. He's done some amazing new work um, on both current programming and to bringing some new programs online. Some of those programs I'd like to enhance uh, even further, like the low-interest loans for alternative energy and family farms. Um, I think those are going to be some that we haven't uh, reached capacity at, and we haven't maybe gotten even to the right target audience for those. So I want to work on those. there's a couple of new things I would like to try. I have uh, have a whole handful of ideas that I want to to uh, come up with uh, and work with um, communities to put into place. Uh, one of those is um, a what I call a prison to reentry program, mm-hmm. and it'd be very similar to the most 529 plans in its its conception. Uh, but what would happen is, you know, the average. Uh, inmate comes out of incarceration with about a twenty-five hundred dollar debt. Why? Uh, usually, f- court fees or a lawyers' fees. I know it's your yeah. She's she's got big eyes. <laughs> she, she does. She does. But continue. It's a it's amazing. Um, and and they don't have you know they're they're hopefully transitioning to a reentry program, and back into their community. And really, don't it's hard to get a job. It's hard to pay off those fees. So you start off with a, in a, in a negative environment. So while incarcerated, you know, I envision uh, an inmate being able to put money in, uh, family and friends being able to put money into the account, and possibly even private industry to match funds if the inmate goes to a financial literacy class or a anger management class or a conflict resolution or no- negotiation on how to start a small business, those kinds of things. Um, uh, and then so so possibly then the, the person goes into reentry with a nest egg, you know, a cushion, something to give, give them the ability to get on their feet when they get back to their community.
2: Well, among other things, the state treasurer sits on the Missouri Housing Development Corporation. Correct. Which generally focuses, I mean, not totally, but it focuses in part on encouraging low-income housing and, and having different incentive programs or loan programs. Is there anything you would do... Uh, if you were there, uh, to either facilitate or redirect as far as housing?
1: Uh, I think there's been some good work done on the special needs, particularly recently. Um, Treasurer's Wifel has been really good about um, providing, I I forget how many, new um, units just for special needs, and I'd like to continue that good work for starters. So there's this novel program in St. Louis that I think we could, we're looking at and could model some other things after that. Actually, um, you know, there's people in the in the housing units that need jobs and and child care, and there's people who can provide that child care, and so they're training up some people who live in the housing development to provide the child care in an accredited fashion, and you know, gain new skills. So they get trained to do a job. On site where people need it. So I think that's there's ideas like that I think we can we can do in the MHDC.
0: Now, even though uh, Treasurer's wife, I think, was a fairly articulate critic of the Republican majority when he was a House member, I've noticed he's had a lot of success of passing things through the legislature, a, a potentially hostile legislature to change the treasurer's office. Um, I wanted to just know what would be your mindset to dealing with the legislature to, kind of get the things the treasurer's office needs, because that's a. it may not seem like a very important thing to the average person, but to get many of these things done, you may need legislative approval. What's gonna be kind of your strategy for that?
1: Same as it was when I was in the House. I went door to door. I love going door to door with constituents, and I love going door to door with legislators, and I will do that when I get there. Um, I think visiting with them and finding common ground and understanding everyone's perspective and what the barriers are is the way to get around them. So I would start there. I also think the treasurer's office is a non-partisan office in, in general. So, um, you know, uh, I think that I'll bring that attitude and that orientation to the office that this is non-partisan. We're all working for the same thing. Let's find the best way to do it uh, and make sure that that happens. Let, let me just give you one example of, of one thing I'd like to do. You know, we've talked about equal pay for equal work for years. We talked about, it. we did bills back uh, when I was there um, and haven't gotten very far uh, here in Missouri. Um, so I would like to do out of the treasurer's office an equal pay, uh, I have, I have a, a friend in another state who's done an equal pay toolkit that has uh, actually helped businesses learn why paying uh, equal pay for equal work for both women and minorities um, that when they do that, it actually helps their business. So you can learn how to do a self-audit. You can learn how what, where where you sit in your industry as far as performance on this issue, and then how to change it. Uh, when They have found that when b- businesses do change to equal pay for equal work, they retain really great talent that they normally would have lost because people will go on to other jobs if they don't feel like they're being paid equally.
0: Now, you're going to have an an opponent in the Democratic primary. You're going to have to convince Democrats on August 2nd that you should be the nominee to go up against State Senator Eric Schmidt of Glendale. If you had a message to the Democrats, not only in St. Louis, but across the state, about why you would be the right standard bearer for this office, what would it be?
1: Uh, I think it would be uh, my commitment and my statewide reach. I mean, I've been committed to them for now uh, over a decade and have been building a statewide name ID, uh, which will be a much different starting place um, when we go up a, uh, against the Republican. Um, in fact, I probably have you know name ID that that matches at least even someone who's sitting right now um, just because uh, I've been out and about for this long. I mean I I don't just go out and about when I'm running for office. I've been, uh, doing speeches in especially rural areas where a lot of people won't go, I'll go and talk. And so if, you'll, if you looked at my map of where I've been and where I've got a lot of support, it is completely a statewide uh, race. I'm already a statewide known uh, w- with a really good reputation, if I could say so myself.
2: <laughs> well, as you're traveling a state, I mean, what's your sense of the energy or lack of among Democrats, Democratic activists, how much, how influence do you think the top of the ticket, uh, if it's Clinton or whoever, uh, is going to have? Because um, it does affect these down-ballot races in particular. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let, let's
0: just give a real-life example with you. I remember uh, President Barack Obama spoke in Columbia maybe, what, four or five days before your election? It's been widely speculated that that caused the polls to tighten, if not get very close during that time. So what do you think the presidential race would have on – what effect do you think the presidential race would have on on a race like this?
1: Yeah, I do think that there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm to get out and vote this time. A lot of people are paying attention earlier than they used to, and it probably has a lot to do with the number of debates we've had uh, on both sides. Um, when I'm out there, I'd say that there's an incredible amount of enthusiasm with the Democrats um, because uh, I think there's a real feeling that the what has happened on the other side has really shown kind of the the um, the the diversity should we say it like that within the Republican Party and they don't even all agree on things um, and so there's gonna be a little bit of we think at their top of the ticket uh, some, um, there' will be some overvoting and some undervoting. It's a little bit unpredictable, but um, I think generally the Democrats feel really unified um, more than people give them credit for. I mean, I think the media sometimes think you know makes bigger of a divide with us than there is. I mean policy policy-wise. there's wise, there's not that much divide.
2: now is is Trump gonna help or hurt as far as getting the Democrats to come out in Missouri? Uh,
1: i I don't know that I could predict it. You guys are probably better at that than me, but, um, I am told by Republican friends that they think that it's going to uh, be difficult um, to have Trump at the top of the ticket.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of scenarios that could happen. He could be the presidential race could be completely neutral and have very little effect. Like in 2012, Romney won the state by 10 points, but all but one Democrat won the statewide but offices. that's because Claire exactly. McCaskill
2: ended up having the coattails because of the mccaskill Aiken fight. And that's not something that's necessarily going to be duplicated in 2016. Now, the other thing
0: is, I mean, there's another scenario where Trump mania spreads wild all over the country and all Democrats lose. There's also the possibility that Trump has said so many outrageous things that he loses by a landslide and all the Democrats below him end up benefiting from that. Obviously, I think you're probably hoping for scenario number three, We'll have to see what happens. We're in May right now. It's an eternity from May into November. Correct. So,
1: as, as I'm going to use your word zany. Yeah. It's as zany as it's ever going to get, I think, this year. We've always said it's uh, the most important year, um, but I think people are really feeling that this year, that this is the most important year. I think that's going to motivate Democrats. I will say that I think that there's going to be a very motivated female vote, vote no matter Who's at the top of the Democratic ticket? The female vote is motivated right now, both young and old.
2: Now, when you're out, 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 money raising, does all of this help or hurt? Or are you finding a receptive climate? Climate is it difficult because of the economy? I'm just interested in general, just sort because since money raising, unfortunately, is such a major part of any candidate's. Um...
1: There's a fatigue for money raising because you know a lot of people don't want money to be in politics as much as it is uh, but they're really feeling like they have to show up with you know a big portion of their own paycheck (laughs) to make things happen Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of activity at the top of the ticket that needs uh, quite a few funds where I'm finding personally that you know we're meeting our fundraising goals and so that makes me feel good Mm -hmm. I mean, we set realistic goals and we are meeting our goals and you know people are like I said, what the f- very first thing I learned in the congressional race was how generous people are and willing to help. And I have been bowled over sometimes with the ability to, you know, I tell what my message is and what we want to do and people sign on. And I'm always bowled over by that.
0: <laughs> well, just as kind of a parting thought, I think except for the governor's race and to Many respects, the the Secretary of State's race on the Democratic side because Robin Smith is running against two perennial candidates. I think every other office is open, and there's so many different candidates that are running statewide that, you know, are probably needing money and support right now. So it, it kind of increases the energy because I think that there's more interest in these office. But also, these offices take a lot of money to run for, so, and there's only so much money to go around, so to speak.
1: They do, I mean, if if people can understand the money as engagement, um, it it would really help. I mean, mean, people wanna complain about the political process, but you know what? Best way to change it is to get engaged. And honestly, fundraising is one of those because that helps us get our message out. That helps us uh, have a team on the ground to be in the places we need to be.
0: So we'll be following this race, and I'm, I'm making this declaration right now. The winner of this primary gets to come back in the general election. So that gives both you and Pat Contreras a little bit of extra incentive to work <laughs> as hard as possible. Thank you very much I'll for coming. I look forward to here. that. Thank um, you. For all of our stories, STLPublicRadio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at
2: J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And
0: are you on Twitter at Judy Baker Mo? Is that what it is? Judy
1: Baker for the number four, Mo M O. Yes. And showmebaker.com.
0: I I was very close, but this is why I have people correct me if I'm wrong. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.